You young people are incredible. There is no other audience I would rather speak to than you guys. You guys are awesome. Um, before we get started tonight, why don't we just, I know you guys just sat down. Let's just stand one more time. All right. And let's just go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this night. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you, to serve you, to commune with you, God, to hear the preaching of your word. And Jesus, right now, I pray that you would anoint this service and these next few moments of digging into your word. I pray that you would anoint my lips, speak through me, God, use me as a vessel for your glory. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would soften every mind and every heart, Lord Jesus, every stronghold that maybe we brought in with us tonight. God, I pray that we would lay aside every burden that so easily besets us, and that, Lord Jesus, you would just have room to work in and through our lives tonight, and that we would leave here completely changed and radically transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So tonight, this uh, message is kind of an interesting one for me, because I first kind of had this thought probably a little over a month ago, and um, little did I know that I would be needing to live this out over the past week. Um, when maybe some of you younger ministers in here start teaching a little more often and preaching a little bit more often, you're going to realize that you're going to come across that sometimes in the messages that you prepare and that you actually kind of have to all of a sudden live it out <laughs> because an opportunity came your way challenging you in that specific area. And so I'm not just uh, preaching to you tonight. I am preaching to myself. So we're all in this together. Amen? Amen. This is going to be an incredible night, and I believe that um, at the end of this service, I believe that um, hearts are going to be changed, and there's going to be some healing going on, and that some of us are, are going to be able to claim victory by the end of this service um, tonight, and so I am, I am thankful for that. By the way, shout out to Seth last week for absolutely killing it. Um, we had an awesome altar call afterwards. That was powerful. I don't know about you, but it has been a while since something like that has happened, and it's just, it kind of feels like, you know, if you think about it, we had this whole weird, like, kind of transition into this room and location, and it's kind of taken a while for it to actually feel like home. Like we were all so used to the Surge Youth Room, and there were so many sermons preached in there and Bible studies and so many things laid down. It's like that room had its own anointing on it almost within this building in a weird sort of way. And um, it was just so marked up with students from, from the past, and, and, um, and all of a sudden we move out here, and it just kind of felt different. Well, I think we're kind of heading into some fresh anointing and season and surge out in this room, and we're making this place our home now. Amen? Amen. So tonight, I want to speak to you on the topic, well, not really a topic, it's just a word, uh, name actually, Gethsemane. And you're going to be really confused why that would, see my slide? Isn't that amazing? I did that myself. <laughs> Gethsemane. <laughs> um, 
it's a little bit of a mystery to you right now, but you, by the end of this message, I promise you, you are going to have a full understanding of just what that means in our lives. And so before we get started into the preaching of the Word, I would like to uh, go to the Word of God and read our, our text for tonight. We are going to be staying primarily within this vein. Um, we are going to Luke chapter 22. We're reading verses 39 through 46. And I'll start with verse uh, 39. It says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood. Whoa. Falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So in the world we live in today... Weight serves many different functions. You have weight sets that build up your muscle. You have weights as anchors for ships and for boats to keep those vessels located in one central place. Um, there are even weights on your vehicles. Uh, your engine has weights. Your, your drive components have weights. Your wheels even get weights pounded onto them so it brings balance and it keeps your car from rattling you out of the front seat. And so weights serve many different purposes and functions. Some other weights that we may feel are the weights from this world. We can feel the weight of expectation and success, the pressure to perform. We feel the weight of sin. We can feel the weight of guilt and of shame. And we can also feel the weight of depression and discontentment. Sometimes we just feel kind of a heaviness on us and we can't quite pinpoint it. But it almost feels like life is just overall just heavy and you just feel this weight and you, you kind of feel anxious and depressed and you don't really know where to go. The bottom line is no matter what weight you are facing tonight, because all of us have weights, all of us came in here carrying something tonight, it's human, and no matter what weight that is, we have a weight bearer who is able to lighten the heaviest of loads upon any human life. And so before we continue into our verses, I would like to give a little bit of context to this tonight. First of all, there are multiple accounts of this story found throughout the Synoptic Gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they all kind of shed more light. Matthew's is the most detailed. So if you want the most detailed version of this story, you'll go to Matthew. But Mark also adds some value with some specific details. And then Luke has kind of his own flair on it and some details that he catches. And we don't have time to completely dig out all of them, so we're just going to stay in the main vein of Luke. So I understand there is more detail to this for you Bible scholars that are going to quiz me afterwards. Um, there, there are some more details to this, but we are just going to keep this central focus because there is something powerful in here for us to dig up. And so Luke chapter 22 actually begins with uh, Satan entering into Judas. 
And so Judas decides to meet with the scribes and the Pharisees who are plotting to kill Jesus, and he decides to strike a deal for a bag of money in order to hand Jesus in. Shortly thereafter, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with the disciples, and they break bread and drink wine, and this is where we get communion. And so they're spending some time together in the final moments of Jesus' life, and Jesus even calls it out in that very moment that his betrayer is sitting at the table with him. And so the disciples begin to bicker over it, and they're wondering who, instead of focusing on the betrayer, they're trying to focus on who's the greatest. They get all prideful, and Jesus kind of rebukes them for that. And then Jesus also lets Peter know, hey, you're going to deny me three times, but don't worry, I prayed for you. Everything's going to be okay. And so after they celebrate this Passover feast, they gather a few belongings, and then they head off to the Mount of Olives, which brings us to our text tonight. And so I'm going to... Read 39 through 41 once again. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. The first point I want to bring to our attention tonight, as we are literally looking into the final moments of Jesus' earthly life. The first point I want to bring out is that Jesus does not isolate himself on the verge of his greatest trial. In fact, he actually ends up bringing a few men along for the journey. Matthew's account lets us know that he brings Peter, James, and John. He doesn't bring all 12 disciples with him. He brings Peter, James, and John. And I think that we would be remiss to to not really hone in on this for a moment and realize that every single one of us need people to come along with us for our journey. So many of us face uh, difficult moments and difficult trials and, and, and tribulations in life, and it's always good to have somebody there by your side. In fact, I like the fact that he brings three people with him because to me this kind of helps us to understand how discipleship works. And Jesus was all about making disciples, right? I mean, we have the Great Commission to go and make disciples. It's a command. And so Jesus, this isn't exactly how it worked in Jesus' life because obviously he is God, so he's literally discipling everyone. But if we look practically at our lives, we can see this kind of, this kind of uh, networking here for how we make disciples. So think about it. Three people. Number one, you are going to want somebody who has some authority over you. Somebody who you're going to submit to, somebody who has veto power for your life, somebody who even if they maybe say the hard thing and it rubs you the wrong way, you're still going to submit. And so that's very important. We all need this person. And if you look at even the disciples, they had that person. It was Jesus. But then also number two, I think a good thing is you want somebody that is in more of a lateral direction of you. Somebody who's more like a friend who's you can laugh with and joke with and have some fun with, but also you know how to get serious with one another and just simply talk real life and, and help support each other and, and carry each other's burdens, and that adds value. And so you have this kind of top-down from a leader in your life, and then you kind of have this lateral approach with other people and friends. But then thirdly, if we're doing discipleship right we should eventually end up with somebody that we are serving kind of from the top down, who's submitting to us, who respects our authority, 
who's willing to submit even if we rub them a little bit of the wrong way. And so this is very important. Jesus brings three of these guys with him because he's not going to live a lifestyle of isolation. And if you follow that pattern, you are going to answer the call to the Great Commission and you are going to live life the same way Jesus lived, with people in your corner. The next thing I want to highlight is found in verse 41. It says that Jesus, um, that he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. Now, what's interesting about a stone's throw is that it's really not very far. This also proves to us Jesus' desire to not be in isolation. Because a stone's throw is, he's far enough away to have some privacy, but yet close enough that these gentlemen can see him and they have a look into his life. And I think we should follow the same thing. It's okay to have privacy. Just don't let it turn into isolation. The devil would love nothing more than to isolate you and make you feel all alone and continue to abuse you and pick on you. But Jesus understands the weight of this, this, this moment that he is stepping into on the verge of Judas betraying him. He's well aware of it. And so he brings all of the manpower and strength with him, and he doesn't just run in the opposite direction like he could, right? He had the will. He could have failed, and he could have just ran, but he doesn't. He remains within uh, a, a, a seeable distance of these of these men, and we need to do the same thing. The next thing we see is found in verse 42. And this is such a powerful, powerful point for us tonight. In verse 42, it says that he says, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What we see here is that Jesus knows who to turn to during difficult times. His Father. Now, this is something that I feel like we maybe lose a little bit as oneness Pentecostals because we have such a, an awesome revelation of the one, of the oneness movement, of one God in everything. We don't believe in the Trinity here. We don't teach that. We just believe one God. God is everywhere all the time. Uh, in, in him dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Um, Unto us a child is born. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Prophecy of Jesus. So we believe all of these awesome and wonderful things, but sometimes we lose sight on just how much of a human that Jesus was. And so when we read on uh, another account from Mark, we actually see some details to this sort of father-son conversation that is taking place right here. And Mark actually adds a very important word for us, and that word is Abba. Mark Mark's account of, of, of Jesus speak or speaking to God is him addressing God as Abba, Father. Think about that for a moment. That term Abba is the Hebrew term for literally, you're probably going to laugh at me when I say this, but I'm just going to say it, for Daddy, Dada, or Papa, literally. Now think about Culture is different today, so it sounds weird. But in this time, this was a very endearing way of addressing your biological father. So what we see here is that Jesus is literally, he's not looking at God as the father of creation. He's not looking at God as the father who ordained everything to come to pass. He is saying, I know who my biological father is, and it is you. 
This is on a different level, folks. This is Jesus strictly as a human being addressing God as his actual biological father. And so we see him crying out to God. And you can just imagine the agony behind this because what is Jesus thinking about when he's talking about this cup passing from him? He knows all the prophecies. He knows everything that's going to come to pass. He knows that the cross is on the horizon just beyond this moment. And so he is crying out to his daddy for help. And he is crying out of a heart of of sorrow and suffering and anguish. And so you can just imagine this, this tension that is building here between this father and son relationship. Because when I think of my own son, who we just had, and when I hear his cry, and I'm in the other room, I get up and I run to my son. And I stare into his eyes and I see the little tears welling up inside. And I would do anything to ease his discomfort. Anything. Well, you might say, well, that's because he's a baby. Okay, good point. I am 29 years old. When I call my dad for help, my dad cannot help himself. He comes to help me in any way that he can. Because my dad, when he hears the voice of his 29-year-old son, he doesn't just hear his 29-year-old son. He's thinking of the first time he probably held me in his arms. He's thinking of the four-year-old in the backyard who took apart a lawnmower and left all the parts laying outside, and he had to put it all back together. He's thinking of, he's thinking of every, every throw of a baseball and toss of a football. He's thinking of the graduation ceremony. He's thinking of the weddings, and he's thinking of the grandchildren. He's thinking of everything. So can you imagine not just Jesus' perspective, but God's perspective? He's looking at that boy laying in a manger. He's looking at that, that, that young man who is learning the trade of carpentry from his stepdad. And he's looking down on the teenager, getting smart with his mother. Didn't you know I was about my father's business? Studying in the synagogue, slowly gaining more and more revelation of just exactly who he is. And he's understanding these prophecies and it's all coming together as he's studying the Torah. And not only does God see that, but this was all God's plan and purpose to begin with. He sees the cross in the future. Imagine as a parent looking down on your child and they are crying for help and you know that just on the other side there is the most treacherous death that any human being could ever experience. Can you imagine the weight of this moment? And just imagine it from Jesus' side. God, help me. And what is God's answer? God doesn't give him the easy answer. What would the easy answer have been? I'm just going to teleport you out of here. I'm going to swoop you up in my arms. I'm taking you home right now. These people can burn. (laughs) No, that's not God's answer. God could have come down and he could have just helped him to not feel half of the pain. Or, an even, or an not, 
not the hardest answer, not the easiest answer. He could have just ignored him. God doesn't do that. God gives Jesus the difficult answer, the most difficult answer possible. In verse 43, it says that he sends an angel down to strengthen Jesus. Imagine that for a moment. He sends an angel down to strengthen him. God gives the difficult answer. He doesn't deliver him. He doesn't ignore him. But he doubles down on the promise that he made all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And imagine for a moment, if we serve a God who is willing to fulfill this promise, how much more is he going to fulfill the promises of our lives? The promise of salvation if we live for him, if we, if we have the new birth experience, baptized in Jesus' name, baptized with the Holy Ghost, the evidence of speaking other tongues, living out a lifestyle of holiness, all of those things that carry us through to the very end. How much more is he going to keep that promise if he kept this one? Amen. And so we see this story begin to unfold even more for us. And we see Jesus' response. God sends this angel down to strengthen Jesus, doubling down on the fact that this is going to hurt, you're going to be tortured, you're going to die. Imagine, imagine that. And Jesus hears God's response, or rather sees it and feels it. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood. Did you know that this is a very real medical condition? It's called hematidrosis. It is a skin condition that occurs when your capillaries, which are little tiny blood cells that surround your sweat glands, begin to burst and pop and explode. And they start to infiltrate your sweat gland. And so then as you sweat, it comes out as a mixture of sweat and blood. Has anyone seen somebody like crying and have a bloody nose at the same time? It makes it look 10 times worse than if they just had a regular bloody nose. Okay? So imagine that though. It's not just blood. It is sweat beating up. It's a mixture of, of water and blood. So you can imagine what this would look like. It wouldn't look very pretty. You have blood coming out of your pores. You're literally sweating blood. That doesn't sound very good. And here's the other fact, is most of the time, most people who experience this kind of condition, it's very rare. Because in order to experience this kind of condition, you need to feel and experience such fear, such anguish, such, such uh, treachery, that your body would get to this point of anxiety of these things actually occurring. And it actually comes when people know they're going to die. That's when most of these cases are found. Imagine with me for a moment if you knew when, where, and how you were going to die, and there was no way of avoiding it. I think a lot of us would feel this level of agony, this level of pressure, this level of anguish and anxiety. It's kind of like being on death row, except for Jesus was on death row for a crime that he did not commit. And he took that all for us. 
And not only that, but this condition, the other thing that it does, is when your body experiences this level of stress in your skin tissue, your skin tissue literally becomes like the tissue you use to blow your nose. It is such a stressful situation that, that this organ that is thick and calloused and can kind of take a beating, all of a sudden it becomes so tender and flimsy that even the lightest nick, you'll just start bleeding. And so I would contend that the crucifixion process never started with a crack of a whip. It never started with somebody spitting on Jesus. It never started with somebody mocking Jesus. It began in this moment from the response of his father. And he begins to bleed sweat and blood, tenderizing his skin for the beating that he was going to take in the future. I can't even begin to imagine. I think we would all get a little more serious in our time with God if we had this kind of a, an experience. There's something else that's interesting about this story that I would like to draw out, and that is the name of the location where Jesus was. Not only was he on the Mount of Olives, but he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so when you look at olives nowadays, they're just olives. But in this time, olives literally represented a way of life because olives were used for soap. They were used for um, oils to put on your skin. Um, olives were also used for oil and many other, there was so many uses for them. And so think about this for a moment. Think about, oh, they were used for oil lamps. That was the other one. They were used for oil lamps to light your lamps. And so think about the ten virgin story. Some had to go back and get oil. And then Jesus returns. That oil used in that story would have been olive oil. So olive oil really was a way of life. And so Jesus is up in this mountain, and he's, and, and he's surrounded by olive trees, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to focus our attention on the meaning of that word, Gethsemane. The word literally means oil press. Oil press. And I have a couple slides here to give us a visual. So this is one version. You can't see it from the top, but this particular design had these big wooden beams, and there was this big, it was like a tree trunk right down the middle, like a huge log, and they actually etched out big threads, like a bolt thread, and there was like a, uh, some knobs, and people would turn and crank it. And so these bushels all had olives contained inside of them. And so an oil press was literally used to apply pressure and weight down upon these olives, and as they would squeeze and crush, what you had coming out was this crimson-looking color called olive oil. Next picture. This is the other design. You would have a donkey on the end of this, and this big stone would roll around. You can see this is more purified, but this big stone would roll around, and it would slowly crush these olives. So in this moment where Jesus is facing his father on the verge of the greatest battle of his life, the battle to just hang in there and take the punishment that was meant for all of humanity, 
Jesus is feeling the timeless weight of sin from past, present, and future generations of humanity bearing down upon him like an oil press. And as this weight begins to bear down upon him, it begins to squeeze him like an olive. And as his, as his capillaries begin to burst, it's like that anointing crimson oil coming out from the pores of his skin. Think about this for a second. An olive on its own is just an olive. The only thing it's good for by itself is consumption. That's the only value it serves. It is immediately consumed. The end. But once you go through the weight of the stone and the pressures, and as it begins to get squeezed and compressed and things begin to burst and that pressure is applied, what comes out of it is far more useful. It is used for far greater purposes than just the singular olive. And the same thing is true in our lives for us in here today. Those weights and those pressures that you brought in here with you, they aren't useless. They don't carry, they, they carry great purpose. And God has a plan and a purpose for every weight that you have in your life. And it's meant to squeeze down on you. And it's not meant to destroy you. It's meant to make you more useful for his kingdom. You see, if we didn't have weights, then we wouldn't have a need for God. Period. But what does our weight do? It does what it did to Jesus. It brings us down on our knees before a holy, heavenly Father, crying out to him with every ounce of life that we have in our body. And we are crying out to him with such agony and such pain and such intention for him to come down and to strengthen us for the journey and to keep us into in a connected relationship with him, seeking his face each and every day. If your life was perfect, most of us here probably don't pray enough as it is, but imagine how much less you would pray if life was perfect. That much less. Um, and the same thing goes for Jesus. His life was crushed because that's what brought the usefulness behind it. If we just had a man who came down and lived perfect and died, and that was it, it's all for nothing. It's literally all for nothing. But because he was compressed and pressed down by the weights of the sin of this world, and he hung and died on a cross and rose again on the third day, we have purpose and victory through the life of Jesus. And so my final question for you tonight, if you would all stand with me, is what is your weight tonight? Maybe you're feeling the weight of repetitive sin. Maybe you have some guilt in your life or you feel the weight of rebellion and isolation. Maybe you're feeling uh, somebody else's weight that you didn't ask for. Or maybe somebody close to you that you respect very highly has messed up and you're feeling the repercussions of that sin. No matter what the weight is tonight, 
we have the perfect example of what not to do versus what to do. When we read in verse 40, 45, it says that when Jesus arose from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. The last thing that we should do is be paralyzed by the sorrow of the weights in our lives. The enemy loves to get you so low and so numb to the weight around you that you will just willingly lay your head on a pillow and give no thought about praying to a heavenly Father. And I'm sure the majority of us in here, including myself, fall for that every time. God forbid that we are ever caught sleeping when Jesus returns for us. Wait was never kept meant to keep you in sorrow. It was meant to keep you in saving grace. When you feel the weight of sin, what's on the other side? What does that produce? It can produce forgiveness and repentance. When you feel the weight of anxiety, it can pr bring out peace because you consulted with a holy God who is able to give you peace that passes all understanding. When you feel the weight of peer pressure, there is a pure and holy pressure that is rising up inside of you that can overcome any pressure in this world. And that pressure is called the Holy Ghost. So what is the answer to all of the weights in this world? We find it in verse 46, and this is precisely what I want us to be challenged with tonight. Verse 46, then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray. If you're feeling sin in your life, you need to rise and pray. If you're struggling with being submitted, you need to rise and pray. If you're feeling guilty, rise and pray. If you're insecure, rise and pray. If your home life's a wreck, rise and pray. If your father isn't perfect, rise and pray. If you've got beef with somebody in the youth group, guess what? You need to rise and pray. And so that's exactly what I want us to do right now in this very moment. I want everyone in here to find a location just like Jesus. You may be around uh, uh, other, other people in this place, but you can still find privacy in the midst of other disciples. Let's find a place and a location where we can rise and pray and take dominion and power and authority over every weight that we brought in here. Lord Jesus, right now.